0: lights. (laughs) What a great day to be alive, right? Great to see all of you here this morning. Awesome job with our praise team this morning. and uh, I'm so excited about today. Today is an awesome day. You know why today is an awesome day? Anybody want to take a guess as to why today is an awesome day? Today is an awesome day because it's a day you have of life And you can impact another person's life for Jesus. That's the only reason that today is an awesome day. You know, we just have to cut the rope of fear that holds us back. And we're going to be talking about that today. You know, in 1853, America hosted its first World Fair in New York City. The organizers built an exhibit hall which they called the Crystal Palace to showcase the latest and the greatest inventions. Now this is where a man named Elisha Otis stole the show by pulling off one of the greatest stunts of the ages. Otis was the inventor of the elevator safety brake. But he had a hard time selling his idea to some safety-first skeptics. So here's what he did. Otis stood on a platform high above the Crystal Palace And he had an axe man positioned above the elevator shaft. And then he yelled loud enough for everyone in the exhibition hall to hear, Cut the rope! And the crowd held its collective breath as the elevator fell a few feet. And Otis announced, All is safe, ladies and gentlemen. All is safe. The safety brake worked as did a sales pitch. When Elisha Otis cut the rope, there were only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five stories high. Why? Because who wants to walk that many stairs, right? In 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908 there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. Fast forward 100 years, and according to the Otis Elevator Company, the equivalent of the world's population rides in an Otis Elevator every three days. I think it's safe to say that Elisha Otis turned the world upside down. Why and how? Because he understood there's a moment when you have to cut the rope. Now I want you to please hear what I'm about to say. Playing it safe is risky. The greatest risk is taking no risk. First of all, it maintains the status quo, and secondly, it leads to something called inaction regrets. At the end of our lives, according to psychologist Tom Gilovich, 84% of our regrets will be the things that we would have, could have, and should have done, but we didn't. It's not the mistakes that we make. As painful as they may be, it's the opportunities we've missed. Yes, you will experience a few fails, a few falls, but cutting the rope is the way we cut the ribbon on our dreams. In his book, *Win the Day, which our sermon series is named after, Mark Batterson shares seven habits that can help us stress less and accomplish more. Now, these are all based on biblical principles that when we follow them can help us become the people God created us to be. Now, we've already learned four of those habits. Flip the script. Kiss the wave. Anybody remember other ones? Eat the frog. Fly the kite. That's right. Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, you're either going to have to go back and listen to our podcast or get the book and read the book. But today, we're going to learn the fifth habit, which, of course, is cut the rope. Now, the big idea for today is this. There is a moment when you need to cut the rope and take a step or a giant leap. And I'm not going to do that because I hurt myself one time doing that. Too old for that stuff anymore. But if you have a Bible, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We begin reading, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. After a furious squall came up, the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In his book, Deep Water, Georgetown professor Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls grand gestures. And it takes a few different forms, these grand gestures. They can be a romantic gesture. For instance, Leon, Leon, now now you're here. You got your bride with you today. Um, How how long y'all been married? We got married June 1st of 2007. Okay, did you get down on your knees when you asked her to marry you? <laughs> what there had to be a grand gesture in there somewhere. <laughs> How many of y'all got on your knees when you asked your bride to marry you? Raise your hand. Ernest Silver? You didn't get down on your knee? Oh my goodness! Mercy boys. Um, <laughs> Um, Well, you know, one gesture could be getting down on your knee when you propose. That's a romantic gesture. A physical gesture, like a before picture when you're getting ready to start a diet or an exercise program. It can be a creative gesture, like the missionaries uh, hundreds of years ago. uh, They're they're called the one-way missionaries. They packed their belongings in a coffin instead of suitcases because they knew they would never return. Now that's pretty one way, that's pretty uh, a grand gesture there. Simply put, a grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in our life. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the doors of the Old Castle Church. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. On May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy said he would land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. Now, there's some people I've talked to that don't believe that really happened, but that's what happened. Anyway, you slice it, the birth of the Protestant Reformation, the civil rights movement, and the space race were all grand gestures. When it comes to goal setting and problem solving and habit breaking, grand gestures are one small step, or you could say one giant leap. They are the point of no return. They are the cutting of the rope and saying, I'm all in. Now, I'm not uh, going to be talking to you today about uh, some different kinds of grand gestures, but uh, you know, we need to understand when it comes to grand gestures uh, that, that the Bible is full of examples of these, from Genesis to Revelation. Just think about some of those biblical examples. Noah builds uh, this huge boat <laughs> even though nobody's ever seen a flood. You go big or you go home, right? Abraham puts his promised son on the altar. The Israelites circle Jericho for seven days. Beniah chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day, and he kills it. Esther does a three-day fast before she takes that step towards the king. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel lays on his side for 390 days. James and John drop their nets. Peter gets out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. Paul shaves his head at Synchreia. The Ephesians build a bonfire and they burn their scrolls. That's just the tip of the iceberg of all those examples in the Bible. But those are tipping points. Those are days when decades happen. Life change occurs. Those are the inciting incidents that turn into defining moments. And each one of them, in their own unique way, cut the rope. For some, it was a huge moment. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. One way or the other, there comes a moment. When we have to cut the rope. Now I want us to go back and look again in Mark chapter 4. We're going to break it down a little bit as we read it. So let's go back to Mark 4, 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now let's not run past this. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. They set out as the sun was setting. Now, that is not an insignificant little bit of information. Why? Because being on the open sea at night is scarier than being out there in broad daylight. Anybody here can attest to that? I don't know if you can, but pitch black out there. In the first part of the next verse, we read, leaving the crowd behind. You know, sometimes we need to leave the crowd behind. Wouldn't you agree? Almost all of us are suffering from information overload. We're bombarded with news and fake news every minute of every hour of every day. We've got online advertisers who are vying for our attention with clickbait. We've got social media algorithms targeting us based on our likes and our follows and our search histories. In my opinion, consuming social media, which is different from creating social media, is like eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm sort of not convinced that we were designed with the capacity to know everything about everything all the time. Are you all with me? I'm certainly not suggesting that we bury our heads in the sand. We need to be praying about the news, which is very different from watching the news. And you know, there's a lot of things in the news now, stuff that's happened in the Ukraine, and we know brothers and sisters in Christ that are there, and we need to be praying about what we're seeing and witnessing. Karl Bart said, it is, uh, he said it this way, Take your Bible... And take your newspaper, now for you younger people, a newspaper is something that's written on paper, it's the news, and you open it up and you read it and stuff, that, that's a newspaper for some of you that are younger. He didn't have the uh, computers and stuff back then. But he said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. You know, sometimes we get this backwards, don't we? And when we do, we're in trouble. When we filter the Bible through the news, our theology conforms to our reality, which really is a form of idolatry. So how do we leave the crowd behind? Well, for starters... Just think about the average person. The, the statistics say the average person spends 142 minutes a day on social media. I'm not going to ask you if that's true of you, but I'm pretty sure it probably is true of me. That represents 15% of our waking hours. Is this how we want to spend 15% of our life? When was the last time you took a day off? And you turn that phone off and you left it behind just for some peace and quiet, just to turn down the white noise. You know, that's one way you can turn up the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. We've got to make sure the still, small voice is the loudest voice in our lives right now. And I know that we got people who are addicted to these things. In some ways, I'm sure I am addicted to it. How did we ever survive without the cell phone, without people being able to contact us all the time? And and you can see it with kids. You know, some parents try to discipline their kids by taking their cell phones away, and the kids actually lose it. The kid would rather be beaten half to death before they gave up their phone. Y'all know what I'm saying? So... The problem is we're so plugged in that we're unplugged from God. So in Mark four thirty six again, in verse 37 as well, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Now, let's think about the topography of the Sea of Galilee. It is 700 feet below sea level, the Sea of Galilee. And it's surrounded by hills and mountains. The Golan Heights, which in the biblical days was called the Decapolis, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So that geography makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to some very sudden and very violent storms. That's what happened that night. They set out as the sun was going down, and Jesus, as verse 38a tells us, was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. Now, years ago, I went on a missionary trip to England, and while we were there, we also traveled in other parts of Europe and spent some time in Italy. And that was the first time I'd ever been around a place where they had a, something called a siesta. I mean, every day, somewhere around 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock, everything shut down. Everything would close down so that people could go and get a little bit of rest after lunch. In fact, there are those who would suggest that cultures that do this are happier and healthier because they take a time to rest. Some might call it a power nap. Maybe you need to talk to your bosses about this, right? Now, I'm not sure if this is what Jesus was doing, but I'm sure that he had to be exhausted from all the things that he was doing, and he was sleeping there in the back of the boat. And in all seriousness... Sleep is really a stewardship issue. Now NASA did a study in which they found that a 26 minute nap actually increases our productivity. Now that's one you can take to your boss. NASA has proven that a nap, most of your productivity happens before noon. But if you take a short nap, you'll get two windows of creativity, two windows of productivity. Long story short, Jesus napped. And frankly, friends, that's all I need to know. If Jesus did it, if it was a good enough for Jesus, can I get an amen? Okay, so power naps. Not now, but later this afternoon. Okay, power nap. We go to the second part of verse 38. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus is sleeping, so evidently he didn't care. How many times have we assigned wrong motives to somebody? Don't don't our minds always go to the worst possible scenario? Well, they didn't speak to me, so they must not like me. Or I didn't get an invitation, so they just, they don't like me. I mean, we always, our minds, we we never could think, well... They didn't mean that, you know. That was an accident, just a, you know, mistake. But we assign blame. We're awfully quick to attribute wrong motives. In stressful situations, our natural tendency is to play the blame game, and that's what the disciples are doing here. In case you haven't noticed, everyone is blaming everyone else for everything that is happening. Nobody ever takes responsibility for themselves, do they? We've got to stay humble, friends, to stay hungry. We've got to stay calm and carry on. We've got to stay in our lane and stay the course. And so, as we look at that text, we see you know, the disciples were misjudging Jesus. He must not care he's not paying attention. Now here's a couple of quick questions. How much of what you say is repeated from some news channel that you're always watching or from some social media account that you're following compared to how much you're reciting God's word? I mean, are you you talking more about what the world and the culture and the news of our culture is telling you to say rather than what the Word of God is telling you. Well, the Bible, as Jesus is laying there and the disciples, hey, Jesus, you yeah, we're going to die. What does Jesus do? He got up and He took an oar and He began rowing as fast as He could, right? No, that's, that's not what He did. Jesus got up and, and he started bailing the water out of the boat. Is that, is that what Jesus... No, no, that's not what he did. In verse 39, we read that he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Oh, you nasty wind, you just stop." That's when I think of rebuking. I think of somebody doing that. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. You know, we suffer a little hindsight bias because... It's almost like we know every story, and so we lose the element of surprise. I mean, you guys have read this story before. If you've been in church, you know the story well. We lose the shock and the awe. But I want you to sort of put yourselves in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. They were stunned by what had happened. They were, they were scared to death, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, be quiet, be still. Be still. And then Jesus said something to them that probably surprised them a little. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Do, do you still have no faith? And maybe we can understand their fear. I mean, if, if you and I were in that boat and it was you know, pitch dark and you can't see your hand in front of your face and the wind is blowing and the boat is going crazy and the waves are coming in, how many of you think you would probably be a little nervous? Okay, let's be honest. So when Jesus asked the question, what what does he mean? Well, Jesus is in the boat too. And if Jesus is in the boat with you, why are you afraid? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that Jesus cares? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and God himself? And if so, And you are a follower of Jesus, because number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus isn't in your boat. And you should be afraid, because your boat is going to sink. But you have an opportunity to make Him your Savior and to bring Him into the boat with you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then no matter what storm the the, the world throws at you, you have nothing to fear or be afraid of. And the disciples were left wondering, uh, what just happened? In fact, it's interesting to me. They were scared to death of the storm. And then when Jesus calmed everything, the text in verse 41 says, they were terrified and asked, who is this? Now they're terrified of Jesus because they know his power. Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Why? Because he had the authority to do so. How does he do it? Well, he just did three words. Quiet or peace, be still. You know, we're living in a time when we as Christians need to exercise some spiritual authority. In the spirit of humility... And maybe we need to rebuke the wind and the waves. All of the stuff that's coming at us. This is a moment for us to stand in the gap as peacemakers, as grace givers, as tone setters. This is a moment to stand against the enemy who wants to divide and defeat and distract us. This is the moment for us to to join with Jesus and defeat the enemy. And in order to do that, we better put on the full armor of God, right? We need to understand that the weapons we use are different than the weapons of the world. And we've seen how the world uses weapons against people. We're not using weapons against people. We're using weapons to save people. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4, we read the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to what? Demolish strongholds, spiritual strongholds. Are you using the weapons God has given you? We don't fight fire with fire. We shift the atmosphere by operating in the opposite spirit. Listen to me. We rebuke hate, not with hate, but with love. That's the way of Jesus. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke cursing with blessing. We rebuke lies with truth. We rebuke injustice with righteousness. We rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. We rebuke cancel culture with grace. We have the authority to move mountains. If your faith is as small as a mustard seed, Jesus said, you can move tell this mountain to move there or to move here. Friend You have authority. We have authority over evil spirits. Now, that may freak some people out because we're so highly educated in America and we're so intelligent that we've gotten to the point we don't even believe in demonic possession anymore. Well, I've been to India and I've been to Africa and I've seen demonic possession. But it must not happen here, right? Because we're too highly educated for it and if you believe that hmm, i'll worry about you we're wrestling against powers and principalities we often underestimate our authority in christ because we fail to understand our identity in christ friends we have authority in jesus In Matthew 18, we read, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Now, it has to be in the will of God, and it has to be for the glory of God. It can't be for your own personal motivations. But we have no reason to run and hide in fear. The God of creation is with us. Amen? Now, Mark Batterson mentions the following grand gestures and Then, I wanted to talk to you about two ways to cut the rope. The first grand kind of grand gesture is what I would call a field of dreams gesture. You know, if you've seen that movie, uh, if you build it, they will come. It's Noah building the ark, even before they had ever seen a flood. It's Abraham making a move from Haran to Shechem, even though he didn't have a map, even though he didn't know where he was going because God didn't tell him where he was going. He just got up every day and followed God. It's that little boy who gives his brown bag lunch of five loaves and two fish to Jesus. And then there's another kind of grand gesture. It's what we might call enough is enough kind of gesture. You hit a point of no return. It's now or never. I can't live like this anymore. It's David's decision to fight Goliath when he said, I'm not going to listen to this pagan talk about my God anymore. I'm going to stand up for God. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to a 90-foot statue of this godless king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's two keys to cutting the rope. First, you have to kneel down. Now, I'm not sure how else to say this, but we need some revival in our land. We need revival in our churches. We need revival in our own lives. What do I mean? Well, if you look over in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, we read, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal the land. Friends, we need some healing. We need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God first and turn from our sinful ways. Revival always starts with repentance. It's repenting of our own personal sin. It's lamenting our corporate sin. And it starts with the people of God. Now, you may never have heard of this guy, but uh, Rodney Gypsy Smith was born on the outskirts of London in 1860. He never received a formal education, and yet he lectured at Harvard. And in fact, despite his humble origins, he was invited by two presidents to come to the White House. Gypsy crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions of people, and he never preached without someone surrendering their life to the Lordship of Christ. Gypsy was powerfully used by God. Everywhere he went, it seemed like revival was right on his heels. But it wasn't his preaching that he believed brought revival. Preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. And that's where he believed revival comes from. Gypsy revealed his secret to a delegation of preachers who wanted to know, "How, how do we do it? How can we do what you're doing, make the difference in people's lives the way you're doing it? And his answer was simple yet profound. As timely and timeless now as it was 100 years ago, this is the advice he gave them, and it's the advice I'm taking and I hope you will take. He said, go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of the floor and with a piece of chalk draw a circle around yourself. And there on your knees pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. That's where it begins. Prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. So we have to kneel, but then you have to stand up. On January 30th, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at the First Baptist Church when he was interrupted and told that his house had just been bombed. That night he was sitting at his kitchen table when he heard a voice that said, Martin, do not be afraid. This all inspired him to take a stand. And he would write this. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job. Or you're afraid that you will be criticized. Or that you will lose your popularity. Or you're afraid that somebody will stab you. Or shoot at you. Or bomb your house. So you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90 but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. Friends, we've got to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. That's not what God put us here to do. We're here to make a difference. We're here to help people come to know Him. In Deuteronomy 24, we read, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Do you believe that God is with you? Oh, that, that means only two people really believe that. Do you believe God is with you? Do you believe he goes before you? Then fight. Stand up. And I'm not talking about physical fighting. I've already told you. Our weapons are not of this world. In Ephesians 6, 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, and friends, it's probably here, right? You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Anybody here ever seen that movie Braveheart with Mel Gibson? It's the story of William Wallace fighting the tyranny of the English throne. And in the movie, as the Scottish army stands before this vastly superior English army on the fields of Stirling, William Wallace is trying to keep his army together. As soon as the men saw that English army, they began to get scared, and some began to turn away and leave out of fear of dying. So Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, gives this iconic speech as he's riding his horse back and forth in front of his lines. He said, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? Some of them said no. Others said against that? No, we're going to run. We're going to live. And William Wallace said, I fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Friends, we are in a spiritual battle. The enemy is lined up to come against us. His arrows have already pierced us in many different ways. His sharp sharp attacks have cut us. His goal is to kill and steal and destroy And his victims are our marriages. His victims are our children. His victims are our grandchildren. He comes against us with accusation and gossip. He comes against us trying to turn us against each other in our homes, in our churches. You can give in. You can turn off the voice of the Holy Spirit. You can go down in defeat weak and frail. Or you can kneel before Almighty God. And you can draw that line around you. And you can repent before God and pray for revival. You can call upon His strength and His power and His mercy. You can pray to the Lord your God. And then you stand up in His strength. Stand in a strength that is not your own. Stand up against the enemy, not backing down, not throwing your weapons down, and running for your life. You can do it, because the battle belongs to the Lord. Whatever battle you're in, friend, and if you're in the will of God, and living for the glory of, the, of God, the battle is His. So kneel down and stand up. Do it today and then do it again tomorrow. Cut the rope and win the day. Father, we come before you. Some of us are weary. Some of us are tired. Yes, we are tired of the fight we feel like dropping our weapons and running in defeat we feel like giving up giving up on church giving up on each other giving up on our marriages giving up on life we listen to the voices of our culture father and sometimes we turn away from faith we question Why you haven't fixed things? Why why are are you still sleeping in the back of the boat? I'm up here struggling. Don't you care about me? The enemy seems to be so strong, so powerful, so overwhelming. The storm seems like it's going to swallow us up. We feel at any moment the boat's going to capsize and sink. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior, Father, help us just to look around. Yes, there He is. He's in the boat. He hasn't abandoned us. And as long as He is in the boat, Father, we must know that we are safe. Even with the wind whistling around us and the waves crashing in, we are safe. Because Jesus is greater than the storm. And if our hearts will just listen. And I pray God that your spirit would help us to hear. As Jesus says. Peace. Be still. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.